Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, founder at Majority. Today, we welcome back our first ever returning guest, Greg Hahn, co-founder and chief creative officer of Mischief at No Fixed Address. Prior to Mischief, Greg was CCO of BBDO New York for nearly 15 years, where he became one of the most awarded creatives in the world and helped BBDO become one of the most awarded companies in the world. That all came crashing down in the spring of 2020 when Greg headlined a wave of layoffs at BBDO in reaction to pandemic fears. Two short months later, Greg co-founded Mischief on a mission to create a place where both employees and clients could come together to do the best work of their lives with less layers and pretense. Two short years later, Mischief was named Agency of the Year by Ad Age, Agency of the Year by Campaign US, and the second most innovative agency by Fast Company. You guys, to achieve these feats in such a short period of time isn't just unlikely, it is totally unprecedented. And for indie agencies like mine, it is totally inspiring. So this is one of my heroes, Greg Hahn and I, talking to ourselves. Am I wrong in saying that uh, I'm your first guest to be on twice? Is that what you told me? So you are my first ever return guest. Um, it's funny. I we we knew we were doing this prior to running into each other at Cannes a few weeks ago, and um, I was just sort of rehashing in my mind that we started kind of trading stories immediately, and the conversation got so sort of deep so quickly that we both kind of made eye contact about two minutes into it and realized we had to stop talking to each other yeah. and just save it for this conversation. And we both just kind of like zipped it and just gave, gave each other a polite head nod and walked away from each other. Exactly. A very, a very odd moment where two people figured we should stop talking to each other at the same time. Yeah. I'm not talented enough to have like the same good conversation twice. Totally. I can't recreate that. Um, so my first ever return guest, Greg Hahn, even though you already answered this question in September of 2018, just for tradition's sakes, let's just start the same way. Where are you from and what did your parents do? I am from Cincinnati, Ohio. My dad is a dentist uh, specializing in implant dentistry. And my mom raised us. Uh, she was a stay-at-home mom raising three children. And uh, I'd like to say she did a good job. When I interviewed you in 2018, you'd been at BBDO for 13 years. Uh, you were one of the most awarded creatives in the world. You were viewed as a standard bearer for one of the most creative agencies in the world. When your co-conspirator and boss, David Lubars, was inducted into the One Club Hall of Fame, I remember seeing that speech. He effusively shared the recognition with you on stage. When I talked to you in 2018, how certain were you that you were going to retire at BBDO? Yeah, I mean... It seemed like that was the that's that was the plan. I mean, I did, I wasn't the type of person that always had my eye out on what I should be doing next. You know, I, I, I committed to uh, the agency for 50, 15 years at that time, was it? And I was or thirteen years, so I was pretty sure, like you know, this was going to be the the path. And I was completely into like kept, kept evolving because the thing about BBDO is that agency did change over the time I was there. I wasn't didn't feel like I was staying at the same place. My role changed. So it felt like it felt like a pretty good course at the time. Those are hard jobs. I mean, I've I've I had a version of it. I witnessed it at McCann with others where, you know, each year the name of the game is performing well at award shows, 
you know, performing well and, and, and winning agency of the year and network at the year of, at can. And, you know, a lot of value is, is, um, is generated from this with our clients and with our colleagues. And you almost become a victim of your success where, you know, you get to enjoy it for 10 minutes or 10 days that you're the agency of the year. And then if you don't do it next year, you have failed. And so, so, you know, you had been there, you know, a total of 15 years, 13 years when we had talked. And so, so much of your job, it felt like was maintaining a standard that you had set um, that if you didn't meet, that the finger would be sort of pointed at you. Is that a good depiction of what your job felt like? I think that's the role. You know, it's it, you're right. Once you succeed, then you have to beat it. So otherwise, you're a failure, right? So the the stakes are, are always high. I didn't feel like my job was on the line. If I didn't, I just felt like you know I'd be letting a lot of people down. But that is the the role is to continuing to keep the to keep the creative at a certain level and. Oftentimes that's measured by how many awards you win. And that's very much out of your control. You know, you just have to keep trying to make the agency, you know, well-known for the best work in the world. And that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot to put on some people, but uh, we had great people there and everyone was sort of, uh, you know, up for the job. So yeah, we did win creative agency of the year for one show. And, you know, the last year I was there, we won a couple times at Cannes and some other shows. We we did win that recognition, but again, as, as soon as you win that, the job gets harder. You start at zero and you have to beat what you did last year. 19 months after our first interview in April, 2020, about a month into the COVID-induced shutdown, uh, you were laid off at BBDO. Uh, by that time, you and David Lubars had worked together for over 20 years. Whether he was the one to deliver the the news himself or not, what can you share about that conversation with David right after you were let go? Wow, you're getting right into it. You're right into the deep stuff. You know, in um, the first episode, we ease in. You know, it's like we 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 pick up lightweight <laughs> second, first. Note to future second guessers: the second time is is harder. Um, <laughs> you know, David did call me, and it was not easy for him. David and I had such a still do have such a, a unique relationship. I was with him at Fallon before BBDO. He brought me into BBDO to, to help him on his mission there. And I was there with him for 15 years. And we, you know, we had such a great relationship, working relationship. Now it's just a friendship relationship, but it wasn't easy for him. It wasn't his decision. And up until that time we got the call, like we thought we were going to be able to stave off all layoffs until at least June. And that, and at that point, maybe we wouldn't have to do them at all because business would have changed. That was the hope. Suddenly I got a call on a Monday morning that there's a big Omnicom meeting happening somewhere in some lair across the world that a few of them got together and said, these are the numbers we have to make. And these are the reductions that we have to do. And let's start right here. And, you know, they saw, saw me as being an expense, I suppose at that point, you know, these are people looking at spreadsheets and they thought that you could cut my job and save a lot of other jobs, which is probably true. Um, I don't think accountants look at creative departments the way that a creative would, but that's the decision that that was handed down. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't easy for David to be the one to make the call, but um, he did. And, you know, we're, I, I understand he was put in a tough position. I don't blame him for anything. Uh, and we're still you know, friends to this day, but yeah, it was, it was a shock to him. It was a shock to me. Yeah. I mean, in a conversation like that, do you, do you guys even try to put 
20 years of, of battles won and, and memories. And by the way, this is COVID and this is a month yeah. into COVID where, where, um, where we feel like the entire world is about to fall apart and you guys are doing this virtually, which at the time was pretty novel uh, and pretty impersonal. We've all gotten the hang of it. So here's this guy you spent a lot of personal, you know, physical time with, and now here you are on a Zoom. You know, did did it come later when you guys could kind of put your shared accomplishments into perspective? Yeah, I mean, there was no frame of reference at that time. <laughs> it was like I've never been laid off. I've been doing this for twenty years. Um, nobody was hiring. Everyone was letting go. No one even knew if agencies were going to be around. Like the world was on lockdown. So, you know, I didn't really know what to react to at that point, but I just kind of, you know, quite stoic at those moments, just kind of said, these, these are the cards that I was dealt. Let's lay them on the table and see what we can play, you know? Yeah. What were some of the feelings you reckoned with in sort of the immediate aftermath? I mean, you just mentioned you'd never been fired before and much less never been fired, you know, probably in the, in the months leading up to it. I mean... I was one of many fans of yours in the industry. If you had never accomplished another thing in your career, you, you'd, have, you'd have done more than most. Um, so I just, you know, in the sort of 24 hours to kind of few days, you, you, you turned around and started your next chapter so quickly that I, I, I want to ask this question as if you wallowed for a month, but did you at least wallow for a day? I didn't really, honestly. <laughs> I, I was shocked. You know, I was kind of like, Okay, but the, the one thing I, that I kept thinking is it, it wasn't just me. Like there were 300 people that were laid off at BBTO that time. And there were everybody I knew in advertising was either in fear of their job or had lost it. You know, there's just this prevalent fear. And in some ways, it was, it was a bit of like, okay, the worst thing that I've been fretting over during this COVID has just happened. So there's a relief in that, you know. And then I immediately started to think that in, in times like, this where the world is sort of being turned upside down. There's always going to be a new opportunity that wouldn't have existed before. So I, I, I focused on that. It's funny, like later that day, I was on the call with Danny Lennon, <laughs> you know, like, here's what's going on. You, she's always been a sound, sound head in these times. I'm like she knows what's going on in d- different industries and everything. I, I just, she was a great ear to have at that point. And she immediately, you know, got me thinking about like, the opportunities available and what's and what's heading. And again, like nobody knew what the world was going to be like in the next few days, let alone months. But um, I, I did see it as a, as a place to start writing a new kind of future. I mean, if we're being honest too, the thing that makes it really hard for someone like you to leave a big job like that, we talk about sort of golden handcuffs, but you know, there's like, when you're at a company for that long and in such a senior role, there is stocks that vest and separate even of the financial incentives um, that incentivize you to stick around. You're just treated really well. You know, your, your, your flights yeah. are booked for you and the snacks are really good. And you've, you've built a, a well-earned reputation in the agency where, you know, people really revere you and admire you and, um, and you've made a home for yourself there. Was there any part of you that was, that was relieved to be let go from a job that maybe you couldn't have walked away from yourself? I don't know if relieved is the right answer, but a uh, right word for it. But I, I, I do feel it was it was somewhat liberating, like to cut the golden handcuffs. And then one thought I immediately had was all the offers I had turned down, you know, because I'm so happy at BBD. I was like, had I known, um, yeah, yeah. you know, I would have given it more thought. But I, um, 
again, having no choice is a good way to not have regret. You know, you, <laughs> right. you, can't, you can't regret the decision you didn't have a choice to make. So it put me in a put me in a, a situation where I really only could face forward and not look back and go like, should I have done this or should I have done that? I feel like I'd given everything I had to give and and didn't I don't think it was a performance review. I think it was a, a really fucked up situation that was happening in in, in the world right at that time. So um, you know, again, like I'm not I'm not a big one for dwelling on on regret or you know spending much time in that kind of thinking. I, I, I feel I'd rather put my energy towards like, okay, now what do we do? Yeah. And you didn't waste any time. You're, you're let go in mid April of 2020. Astonishingly, I looked at the sort of the dates of the press releases, uh, the, the article saying that you'd been let go was April 16th on June 1st. It's announced that you're the co-founder of mischief. Uh, this tells me obviously you didn't, you know, even think for a second about looking for sort of a similar job at a, at a different network. Um, or, or correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's actually not true because again, I, I thought the worst thing for me to do and my wife was probably, was giving me probably better advice was just like, take some time off, like go, like there's nothing happening right now. Take some time off. This is a moment where you can just like enjoy, but that's, first of all, I felt like I had this sort of sort of Damocles over my head, whereas like my, Benefit's going to run out soon. I'm going to need a job. And I'm not one to sit around and kind of wait. I, I'm too anxious for that. So immediately I was, you know, I, I, you know, there were other jobs out there that were kind of, you know, at that level I was at. So I talked to a bunch of different people. I met some, I had some great meetings. I was like on the phone more, you know, like back to back to back for the, for the few weeks, talking to different agencies. And a lot of them were like, we see this as a great opportunity. You know, we have to have had to cut back too. So we're still readjusting our finances, but we want to put you on, you know, like make something happen. And, you know, just then thinking about what I wanted to do, I, I, I don't think I was ready to jump back into, I know I wasn't ready to jump back into like the big holding company system or anything similar to what I was doing before. So I, 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 did, I put myself through a lot of um, homework of just like what models out there, what, what, who's succeeding in this environment, who's doing something different and in other agencies, other holding companies, what's the atmosphere like there? So I, you know, you know, I talked to a lot of people and spent most of my time rather than sitting around letting thoughts occupy my head, just talking to people who were you know, in position to, to, to guide me or offer a job or something. Yeah, I mean, I think the the creative mind, it's like we have a way of solving problems and we most often apply it to solving problems for brands. But when mm-hmm. we have a problem in our own life, we we often apply the same process. And so, you know, in the little bit that we talked in can, I think I, I tapped into this and and I and I think it's manifested in the ways that you've sort of formalized the values upon which mischief was created. Um, and at the center of it is the word fear. Tell me a little bit about your, your relationship to fear at BBDO and how did that relationship with fear inform the shaping of mischief? I don't know if it's just a BBDO thing. I just felt like it's kind of, it reminds me of that saying, like whoever discovered water, it wasn't a fish because when you're in it, you kind of don't see it, but stepping out of it, just kind of realized that there's this ambient fear in advertising throughout everything. You could see it in, in articles and blog posts that everyone was afraid of like losing a client or everybody was playing defense. 
and stepping out of it, I was like, fuck that. I want to play offense. I want to do what I would do if there was no fear. And that, that became a really important part for me. And I think that a lot of agency decisions are based on either keep holding out to a client or making sure you're doing what the client wants instead of what you're doing, what's right. And I, I um, also didn't want to be in a situation, again, like, what's my next job? I didn't want to be in a situation where people make decisions about my life and my career in rooms that I'm not allowed to be in. So control and fear and lack of fear were two things I was looking for. And then, you know, I've told the story before, but I came across the agency No Fixed Address because they were popping up in my LinkedIn a lot of, they were actually hiring during this time and winning business. So I contacted the founder and on their website, like the first, <laughs> first thing they had on their website was a line that said, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And that's what they built their agency on. It's like, fuck, that's so liberating. Like just that thought clears the spaces for so much great work and so much greatness that, that it immediately felt like a, a breath of life, you know, into, into advertising. So, you know, that's, that's how we built mischief is like, the parents are out of town. You can have your, your best, your best uh, judgment to do what you think is right. Yeah. Uh, I know you experienced this because on a much smaller scale, I experienced this where I talk to creative leaders who I really admire and whose careers I really admire. And when they ask me about starting an agency, the first thing they say is, well, I mean, I could never do that. I could never do what you do. Yeah. To which I say, you definitely could. The way that it works is, there's going to be a bunch of steps. You don't know how to do all the steps, but you do know how to take the next step because either you know how to do it or you know someone who's done it who you can ask. And as you take one step, subsequent steps will sort of reveal themselves along the way. And so there's so many people who kind of say like, I, they sort of dismiss themselves and you go, no, you, not only could you do it, you could do it really well. You just sort of give yourself the grace to understand that you don't have all the answers on day one. What were some of the misconceptions or insecurities you had on day one about your sort of ability or lack of ability to do this thing? There's so much that goes into running an ad agency that I'm not prepared to do or good at, right? So the, the key to me was finding the right partners who are good at what I'm not and like love doing it. And that, that came with um, my partnership with No Fix Address, which was run by Serge Rancourt and Dave LaFond, who are two extremely seasoned business leaders in advertising, like their presidents of agencies Surge started Publicist Canada. These guys know, knew what they were doing operationally and how to treat people and how to start a successful business. So Dave, in, in our conversations, you know, I did not plan on starting an agency with Dave. We were just talking about stuff and he's like, well, have you ever thought of starting your own agency? And I think, I think every creative has that in the back of your head. Did you, when you were even a junior or mid-level writer or creative on staff, have in the back of your head, like the perfect agency for me would be this. I would do it, form it in my own way like this. It was never that for me. What it was, was I, I had started at CPB after they were already wildly successful. They were wildly successful when I was in college. And so I got there and I would go to dinner with some of the people who were there when it had just, when it, when it had just started. And they would speak so romantically about what it was like when they didn't know if it was going to work or not. And I always just thought to myself, like, no matter what I achieve here, that I'll, I'll never feel that. And that feeling was incredibly attractive to me. Yeah, the building of something and being yeah. on a mission together is... And not is, knowing, is, you know, not knowing whether it's going to work or not. It's one thing to take a job at BBDO. It's like, look, this has been working for a long time and your, your ceiling at this job is to be 
the 30th face on a Mount Rushmore that was created long before you got here. And by the way, that, that in and of itself is an incredible accomplishment. But to do something and to overcome the fear of not knowing whether it's going to work or not, to me, is, is the most exhilarating thing. So I always had this vision in the back of my head of like this playful wonder room of creatives, but that didn't involve how to make a successful business. So when talking to Dave, you know, when he, when he asked me if I'd ever thought of it, I said, yes, I, I, I've thought of it, but you know, I quickly realized that it involves a lot of skills I do not have or want to have because it's just not where my passion is. And Dave just said, well, what if we had somebody to take care of all that stuff for you and you get to build the, the, the agency you want under your creative vision with, very little interference. We trust you. And I was like, that is a, a golden deal. Let's keep talking. And, you know, David done, done such, Dave and Serge both have done such a good job with starting from nothing, you know, all over having been through the holding company and the big agencies, starting from nothing to build no fixed address of this place that were, was built around people and doing things better by people and anti-holding company. And it was, they had taken care of all the operational stuff, which is involves, you know, when you open an agency, you, still, you have to do IT, HR, um, not to mention all the other like, factions of media and PR, all that stuff. So we built this model where MISCIP would be a center of creative excellence at the very beginning. It was super small. And then we could pull in as we needed, you know, media people, PR people, other creatives from no fixed address. That's how we got our leg up. So we started to form this vision in this model and that came together really quickly from the time we first started talking, which was April, you know, and dealing with all the lawyers and everything, all the, you know, things it takes to run a legitimate business in America. We launched in June and even that felt like it was too long for us. We were originally going to launch on July 4th, Independence Day, because we were independent, you know, uh, two problems with that is one, um, nobody's open on independence day. <laughs> the other is like, it just felt too long. We just like, come on, we're ready. Let's, let's, let's just get out there and, and launch. And we're, we're both anxious to put this out in the world. So we launched on June 1st and that was, uh, you know, looking back on a crazy short period of time, but I think like the circumstances and the situation of COVID helped us. We didn't have to fly back and forth. We were able to have meetings with people all over the, you know, the globe in, in, hours versus days and everything came together really quickly. And we, we started from, you know, a very small core group and that eventually started to grow. Yeah. I mean, did you find in a, in a, in a strange way that the sort of confines of COVID were creating some unintended benefits in the formation of a company where like, like think about how you would form a company before COVID. You'd be flying all around, taking meetings with all these people. And in fact, it would almost feel offensive if you asked someone to like Zoom with you about starting a company. You know, it's like, if this is important yeah. to you, you'll fly out to LA or fly out to Toronto and have this meeting with us. But everybody has 15 minutes. Everybody has 30 minutes to jump, you know. And so, and then when you start to get to know talent and again, I think it's like you meet somebody in a boardroom versus meeting them even if virtually meeting them in their home office with their kids screaming in the background, it like it lowers the pretense and it kind of accelerates the intimacy. Did you find that, that to be the case? Absolutely. I mean, I started an agency on Zoom, you know, with three people I've never met before in real life, two people. Yeah. And, our, and then we brought in our president who we none of us had met in real life until a year and a half after we had founded the agency. And we were up and running and, you know, it already had a full-fledged, you know, successful at that point agency happening and had never met. So a lot of that was 
quickly formed relationships on Zoom and virtually and just being accessible to each other and super open. And I do think of, yeah, the intimacy of being in somebody's home and, and not set up a big formal meeting where you have to fly in for and, and spend weeks between meetings helped, helped us launch. And, you know, it's like a new agency for a new world kind of thing. Just we, we, we operated within the confines of the things that were happening. And, and um, you started the agency with one client, which was Craft, and today you have something like 30 clients. Uh, tell me a little bit about how do you find clients? How do clients find you? How much sort of law of attraction have you felt at work over this first two years? Oh, law of attraction is huge. Yeah, now that you mentioned, I've really thought of it, but that is a lot of them. We don't, you know, have hasn't been through formal pitches or things like that. Kraft found us because I get, they had heard that we were opening something, and there's a relationship between no fixed address in Canada and and one of the Kraft clients who was at a different a different company before that, and they had a special project. Thought that you know why not give this new agency a try? They've heard of you know some of the people involved, and they thought. Could be interesting. It's a low stakes project, so we did that for them as a craft Capri Sun thing, and really great people, and they're super open to new kind of thinking, and and they brought us in for a couple other projects, and that snowballed into like other people asking them who is the agency and what do you think of them, and it, a lot of it started word of mouth and just through our press. Another really smart thing that looking back on it, we didn't know it was smart, but it was <laughs> it turned out to be a good decision from, from the founders was. Hiring um, Oliver McAteer as our PR person who came from campaign, never worked in advertising agency, but he was brilliant at branding us and putting us out there and getting us in the right publications and spreading the word about mischief, you know, in a, a non-traditional kind of fun, un-corporate way. So, you know, a lot of a lot of our clients just were interested in what we were doing and came to us. We did very few, still do formal big pitches. Yeah, that, P, that PR element is so important. And it's like, we're supposed to be in the business of putting brands into culture and making brands cool and making brands relevant. And it's like, if you can't do that with your own company, then, yeah. then, then, then what makes you qualified to do it for ours? And so I always felt like, um, I mean, you guys kind of in an unprecedented way in the way that you built your own brand and, and clients ultimately, like they're not you know, they're, they're responsible for driving sales and driving results, but you know, the clients that are interested in putting their brand into culture are the clients that are, are going to find you. And conversely, and maybe you experienced this in your previous role. I know I've experienced it in previous roles, clients who are, um, who are into multiple layers of approvals and sort of moving food around a plate and you charge for time. And so the agency is incentivized to waste time and it feels like you know months go by before you can sell in sort of a a sham of a strategy to sell it to like so much groundwork has to be laid before you can even talk about an idea and just by 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 its nature big network agencies are going to attract some of that not not every client but some clients are going to feel that way um but the clients that are into operating that way they're not coming to you well we Interestingly enough, we had we do have some big clients that that sometimes work with you know those those kind of agencies, but it's also a fresh breath of air, a breath of fresh air, 
<laughs> and they kind of want, you know, we, we, we work the way we work. We don't send that in some ways is very refreshing on these false errors. And I think that, you know, our, our way of working was to just blow that, that model up and let's get to ideas quick and let's try to meet with the people who have the power to say yes and not waste a lot of time on process. There's a big part of it. It's like, let's eliminate the unnecessary process and just get to the best work. And as far as law of attraction, that's always been our model. The, the branding has been very intentional. Like you say, we want to make sure like our best client needs to be us too. You know, like we need to, we need to believe in branding and in the power of media. So we've been very intentional about that. And one of the tools, probably our most powerful tool is um, the work we do for other clients. So putting that kind of work out there attracts the kind of clients that want to do that kind of work and become sort of a self-fulfilling circle in a way. Yeah. The pitch thing is, is remarkable as well. I mean, I, I, I think about, you know, at, at working at a large company where the pitch process could go on for months. Um, and then you start a company and big brands will call you and just be like, want to work on this thing? And he goes, that's it. It can be that simple. You can just ask me if I want to do it. And, I, and we say yes. And we start working on it tomorrow. And you go back yeah. and you just think about, you know, just sort of how, how bizarre and how, like, you know, how sort of obscene the, the, the pitch process could be at times in kind of our previous lives. Yeah. It sounds like you're having a similar experience that, that we are is where it's just like, why did it have to be so hard for so long? Like it, advertising doesn't have to be that complicated. If you get rid of the process and the silos and all the other stuff that gets in the way of actually doing the work, it's pretty fun business, yeah. you know, and, it's, and you just have to be aligned with like-minded people. Well, in the pitch process, you know, so often that huge sort of, you know, bloated process is because a really big brand is going to give all of its global work to a really big network. And so, so many considerations have to be, you know, taken into account, but, you know, I'm guessing with, with mischief, especially in the first year, it's probably, you tell me if it's starting to change now, but like, you know, usually those those brands that are coming to you, they already have that company in place doing most of their global work. And you're being brought brought in almost like a creative SWAT team for a special project. Or 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 was it more like, hey, th there's a real commitment to, to us coming to you? We, we sort of have three or four kinds of buckets of clients. More and more what we started as projects become like retainer Um relationships where we do a certain amount of projects for flying a year. So it's not like a one and done kind of thing. We have a relationship with we'll other thing with the same client. So we have two or three of those. Then we have uh, smaller sort of startup clients that take us on as like, you're, you're our agency. You're, you're going to be the one that's going right. to help us. And, and we have, and we have done a, a few pitches in global clients. Like we have Shutterfly was a full on pitch between us and, you know, some very well, well-known established agencies. And we won that one, you know, as a, as you would a normal kind of traditional pitch. And then um, Tinder was, was meant to be a global pitch. They were going to put it into review and start the pitch process, but they gave us a project and they liked working with us. And they said, why are we going to waste your time on a pitch when we have an agency we really like working with? So we got their global business that way, which I think is really the best way to do it. You work on a, yeah. on a project or see if you guys see if everything aligns, see if you like the way you work together. And that's the true test. I think a spec pitch in three months of, you know, few meetings in between is, is a false test. 
it's nice to have that retainer because you can forecast, you know, against that revenue. And but but you're right. I think sort of functionally, this notion of you know, give us a brief. Let's do one thing together. Let's see how we like working together. And you know, and and one success will lead to the next opportunity. And all of a sudden, we've looked up and we've done five things together over four years. Is sort of yeah. the best. Listen, at the end of the day, even if a client tells you that they that you're their agency of record, I think you're always one or two bad projects away from the um, from the relationship being reassessed anyway. So, like, whether you want to call it project based or not, you know, I mean, I think yeah. that's that's actually what it always is. Yeah, you have to have yeah, you have to kind of understand that you know the game is played that way. But um, I don't know. We we've just been either really lucky or like you say, the law of attraction, we've attracted some really great clients. We don't, I mean, you probably have the same situation where as a small agency, you have the power to say, no, you don't have a holding company telling you what to, what to pitch or what to keep as a client. So that's been our strongest superpowers, the ability to say, no, we don't take on clients that we don't like as people. And I think a lot of agencies have to put up with some bad behavior, some bad clients, because it's just too costly to say no or to, to walk away. Can you feel that lack of chemistry on, on the first zoom? Can you feel whether or not you guys are sort of simpatico with a group of people? Yeah, you can immediately. Like zoom is surprisingly good for that. You know, provided that y'all keep your cameras on and things like that, which I think you should for the first meeting. I, I hate it for most reasons, but you know, I mean, I remember like there's some meeting we were having with, I won't say client, but it's a big, it's a big industrial, like huge, you know, household name client. It felt very stiff at first. And, and it was early in days of zoom. And I was just like, in the middle of a conversation, I was like, I love that wallpaper. It's fucking cool. And then we started talking about wallpaper for 20 minutes and it was the best conversation ever. And we started like each other and like the meeting ended up with like, you guys are great. We love you. Like, let's call back again. And you just have to break down some of the, like start talking to people as humans instead of, um, you know, positions or, you know, whatever their titles are. I think, I think in agencies that, that um, artifice of the conference room and people coming in with boards and us sitting across the table from the, the clients puts up a lot of, walls between humans and we just like we'll be us and if you like us great if you don't we're probably not the right agency you know what one thing i experienced during my time at, at, at crispin was like there came a, p- a point where big brands would come to crispin and feel like we want to hire you because you are the avant-garde agency now we've hired you we're very proud we've hired the avant-garde agency now we're going to teach you um, all of the way, the ways that we do business and show you, um, our process. And, you know, in, in just two years, you've created, you know, the, the A-list agency of the year. And so I wonder, as you talk about saying no, how hard it is sometimes, um, when things are, are financially lucrative and give you a chance to further grow the company, but either you don't feel that that chemistry, or it feels like man, this is maybe creatively less stimulating. And have you encountered clients that felt like they were hiring you for the wrong reason, where you know yeah. they want the fearless association, but they may not have the stomach to approve the fearless work? Yeah, that that does happen. A couple of, couple of things happen that 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 sort of reminded me of. One is they put you in the pitch because you're the avant garde agency. And then you look at the other agencies that you're pitching against and they're nothing like you. We usually walk away from those because we don't want to be the wild card. They just want to see what we would do. 
it's a waste of our time. And then the other is like what you're saying is they they want you for what you are until they hire you and then they want to make you like their last agency. I that hasn't really happened to us because we do say no. And I think we have a very long-term picture of this. I think it does more damage to your brand and agency to hire a big client that does the wrong kind of work than it would be to not have that client. Because you'll end up that that will be the thing that most people will have to work on. And if nobody's happy working on that, or if the work isn't good, it doesn't represent the kind of work you want to be doing. It, it will still attract the kind of work that, you know, more work like that will come your way. And if that's not how you want to build your agency, you shouldn't be involved in it. So it's hard to say no. And especially when there's a lot of money on the line, but you know, that that's a short-term win for a long-term loss. And, you know, we, we try to be smart about those decisions. Yeah, and you talk about vision, and you know, I think anyone who starts a company, the the questions start to come in about sort of what's your plan and what's your vision, and and, and thinking in that that long term context, and and of course it's important to have vision, even if it's as simple as you know, if the rock upon which it's built is something as simple as you know, what would we do if we weren't afraid? You know, that's a starting point for a vision, but then then from there, sometimes I think, you know, when we follow a certain swell of momentum happening around us with a sense of trust and curiosity, the outcome can be so much greater than the confines of the vision that we had a few months earlier. You know, I'm positive you did not set out to be the ad age A-list agency of the year in your second year in existence, because that would be just an absurdly unrealistic ambition that defied all precedent until you actually pulled it off. But, but just more broadly speaking, how do, how much of what mischief has turned into feels like the realization of a vision versus kind of a an unanticipated organism with its own life force. I think more the second. It just felt it feels like there's a momentum that has has picked us up and I also just think, you know, fate brought together the right people at the right time to make this happen. Some of the best planners, account people and creatives that I've ever worked with in my long career have come together at this time in in a short period of time. And these are people I didn't know before. So it wasn't like it pulled upon, you know, of course, Kevin and Bianca, who were the first people I hired, I knew were great. I needed that to start. But after that, it was kind of like, let's pull in people that we haven't worked before. And, and they have led to our success in, in ways that I could not have imagined. But yeah, like you said, like, I never set out to like, we're going to start this. And in two years, we're going to be agency of the year. Like that's, that, that's crazy. And it kind of scares me to think, think about that. But, you know, every step of the way is just seemed like the wind was behind our backs. So we kept going and we still will keep, you know, it's like, that's just the force you want to ride on is do what you think is right. Do it, do what you would do if you weren't afraid and let the, the, the pieces fall where they may. Your, your job at BBDO, as we discussed, was essentially to maintain a high standard for the creative output. And a big part of your job at Mischief is to maintain a high standard for creative output that you guys have set in just two years. Uh, how has your creative process changed in this new chapter compared to the previous chapter? Some days, does it feel pretty much the same? I think our whole process has changed. It's become a lot more collaborative. And that might've started just the way, again, from the pandemic, just the way we were working these days online virtually and through Google Docs, where we're all kind of looking at each other's homework. <laughs> you know, So it's become very collaborative and planners and strategists work together on the strategy and we bring planners in on creative reviews early. Um, so it, 
it felt like it's less of an assembly line at Mischief. It's more of a swarm, but we still give people, you know, the, the space to do their thing. But my, you know, my role now, I kind of see it as like elevating the, the, the work that comes out of Mischief is just like elevating the brand of Mischief. So that could be through the work or through whatever else we do. It's just kind of like creating a space where everyone can come and do the best work of their lives. So just like clearing all the way, you know, I'm still very, we're a small agency and we're a creative driven shop. And part of the reason I wanted to start something like that and not be a hood ornament at some larger holding company was because I like to be involved in the work. So at this point, I'm still very much in, involved in it, but we have, you know, Kevin Bianca doing most of the hard heavy lifting. I just come in with the point of view or perspective sometimes uh, way too nitpicky comment on editing, but um, that it, 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 our, our work is our, is our calling card. So, you know, that's what everybody has to be focused on. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of what we briefly talked about in can, but you know, for me as a person who's generally kind of optimistic and a pleaser, you know, what I told you was I didn't realize how unhappy I was at my previous job until I started this company. And I, and I don't mean that pejoratively. My old company treated me really well and, and, um, and I had a great experience there, but it's, it's what you just talked about. It's the swarm approach versus, you know, that sort of factory line approach. And I think the, the biggest um, revelation for me was the detriment of too many smart people. You know, I remember working as a freelancer on a pitch for a large holding company agency. And it's like, I'm on this call and I'm on there and the CCO of the globe is on there and the CCO of North America is on there and the CCO of New York is on there. And then the ECDs of New York are on there. And then the ECD from Detroit and there's seven chief strategy officers. And, and all of these people are really talented. And, and, um, and part of having those roles is that you want to contribute. And so once everyone has contributed, there's a, there's a point at, of a diminishing return at which collaboration starts to stifle decisiveness and, and like pressure testing and devil's advocacy just starts to sort of erode confidence in any idea. And I think that the result of that is, and then you go to your client and if it's a big client, your, your, your endurance has already been tested just to get the idea out of your own internal door before you've even started helping them navigate their complex you know, um, bureaucracy, which is part of our job sometimes. And so for all the perks of working at a holding company, that's what I miss the least. What do yeah. you miss the least? I don't know, man, you impact, you said a lot there that's worth exploring. One, again, is like your, your thought about like not knowing how unhappy you were until you stepped out of it. I wasn't unhappy, but I, I realized what was wrong with a lot of the, and, and I did feel like a great relief. And like, why, again, like, why did it have to be so hard? So that, that was a big revelation. And then the other thing is I just see my, my job is to create an atmosphere where people can do the best work of their lives, which means clearing the space a lot of the times. So we don't have, you know, the rule we have in our meetings is like, you can say whatever you want, please add in. But the, the thought is it should always land on, is this making the work better? So we don't have people that need to feel the need to uh, say something just to prove they should be in that meeting, you know, or prove their worth. I think that's, that's dangerous. That's how committees, you know, ruin work. So everyone's contributing, but they all have the same goal in mind. Or and if they don't have anything that's going to make the work better, they don't need, you know, nobody feels the pressure to say anything. But um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. Well, I just, you know, I mean, you've talked a lot as I've read some of your previous interviews. You talk a lot about you use the word bureaucracy a lot, and um, and I, I sort of think about it as this notion of sort of too many smart people, 
And um, even the thing that I would say, like, I would value the most working at a big agency was when you'd, you know, you'd start to sort of work an idea that you were excited about through the internal process. And, and you're, you're presenting it to your, in, to these internal layers of leadership as like, Hey, I, I want to bring you in on this and I want to get your opinion. But, but what you really want so often is just like some validation. You want, you'd love for the chief strategy officer to tell you a reason that you like the idea that didn't even occur to you when you brought it to him or her in the first place. Like what a gift that is. And so I just, I just wonder if you could expound a little bit on, on sort of how you define bureaucracy and how you've thought about kind of subtracting that from this new chapter of your life. Well, it, like you said, it, in certain agencies and certain kind of structures, it, the hardest part is getting it out the door. And I thought that we sh- that should never be the case in mischief. That should be, you know, the, the hardest part should be coming up with the idea. And then, you know, once, once it gets out the door, once it gets to the internal process, we, then it should be like minimal changes are making it better. You shouldn't feel like you have to guard it or feel defensive about your idea internally. You know, of course, you know, we, we're, we're quick to tell you if we don't think it's the right idea, but um, externally, then you, it's your job to make sure that the people that are stay, are in the meetings are people that can say yes to an idea because that's, that's an easy way to go through rounds and rounds and rounds, is, you know, having someone that can't really prove the idea, but can't kill it at, you know, see the word. So, you know, I, I think bureaucracy is the enemy of anything fresh and interesting because it's so much easier to say no than it is to say yes. And it's a much safer place if you're lower. So uh, any I, anybody who's running an agency or in an agency, just try to stream it down as much as possible because it, it, it only hurts the work to have more people try to uh, prove their value by adding or subtracting from it. I think there's a conception that when you start a company, you work harder, you sleep less, but you were already working hard. You've been working hard for, for decades. And, and the job you had at BBDO was a hardworking job. And there was, there was no shortage of work that you could be putting your eyes on, making better, you know, um, contributing to. When you really look at it, do you feel like you're working harder than you were? Are you working, are you in, in some ways, are you working less hard because you're able to be more decisive? Here, here's the thing is I spend this, maybe the same amount of time, probably more now at Mischief, you know, just the day in, day out, and, you know, we're all on Zoom. So that the, the 24 seven has added to that. But here's the, the key difference is when I go to bed and I wake up, I'm not debilitated. I'm not depleted. I'm in, invigorated it's an energizing kind of tired. If that makes sense, you go to bed. Oh my God, you believe what we did today. Or like, I'm so excited to get this thing out in the world or this, that was crazy. That was so much fun. It's a different kind of exhausted than it is when you're just like, Oh, what a, what a trudge that was, or I can't, I really dreading something. So, um, they're both hard work, but one leaves you debilitated and one leaves you energized. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that you, that's a good way to decide if you're in the right job. Well, to that point, I mean, you know, when I interviewed you in 2018, you know, like, like a lot of us who've experienced success at one company over, you know, an elongated period of time, like I felt like, you know, your, your work and your accomplishments at BBDO were intertwined with your identity and, um, and our work is inevitably intertwined with our sense of identity. If we're doing something that fulfills us. Do you feel a change in your sense of identity since starting Mischief? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's something that maybe can be perceived from the outside. I'm probably the last person to ask that question, but I, I think that, you know, it feels like a different phase, you know, it felt like after BBDO, okay, now I'm starting over, you know, going to wipe this late clean. I'm just going to, and that, that was something I put on myself. It was just like, okay, let's, let's see if I can prove it to myself that I can do this on my own and do something interesting and not have the support of a big agency or not have my, my reputation of being at that agency for, you know, that long. So um, I feel a lot more independent. I feel like the agency is far more of a reflection of me than, than BBDO is because just because that, that agency had been around 75 years before I got there, yeah. however long that was, you know, this, I feel is more of a reflection of me and the people who are, who are working there. And we talked about bureaucracy and, 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 and sort of being the sort of antidote to that when you're a smaller company and you get to sort of hand select your colleagues. Uh, but we also were also taught that as, as agencies succeed, they must grow. And growth is sort of the ultimate metric of success. Now, I don't even know if that's true or not. Um, but as, as you grow the agency and you guys have, have grown relatively quickly, I know you've tried to be selective um, and grow responsibly. But, you know, how do you, how do you grow the company in a way that it feels like it's true to its founding principles and, and allows you to remain hands-on um, yeah. even as, you, even as your, 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 your client list expands and you can only be in so many places at one time? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on defining your goals as is growth the goal. To me, the goal is impact. You know, I want to make an impact. And that can come, that most often comes through having an agency of some size. You know, like Droga became super impactful when they reached a certain size. Wyden has remained amazingly pure to the vision and been able to grow. So to me, that's 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 a sweet spot is staying true to your vision, but being able to have enough, you know, enough clients, enough people working for you that you can, you know, take on global kind of things and, and have an impact, but you can make an impact even when you're small. I, I hope that that's what we're, we're trying to prove at mischief is you can be louder than your size, you know, and, yeah. and, and have an indent and do things that, um, you know, the, the agent that the industry appreciates for just being you. Yeah. When you started the company, you just mentioned a couple companies that, you know, that we all admire. Um, when, when you started the company, were, was there a, a founder, an agency founder in particular, who gave you some great advice or who you sort of sought out? Uh, David Droga, for one. A lot of them, actually, Jeff Goodby, too. He called me two days after I got let go, and he was just amazing. He, yeah. Yeah, Brian Collins, all these people just reached out to me as, no, you know, nothing to gain from it for them, but, but just to say, you know, how you doing and what can I help you with and all this kind of stuff. But, but David Droga at the very, very end of my search, when I was just about ready to launch mischief and, you know, dealing with lawyers and stuff, he just gave me like a 15 minute business school, which probably, you know, taught me more than I ever learned at Ohio state in the four years I was there. He was just, cause he's a brilliant businessman. It's creative is a given, but I didn't realize how smart he was. I probably should have considering he's, you know, very successful. But, um, you know, he gave me great business advice about starting an agency and what you want to look for in, you know, in setting up an agency. And I just think he's done such a great job of turning a creative boutique into a powerhouse and showing that it can be done. So, you know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good thing to have out there as a model. The coolest thing about him is that his advice comes in very 
plain speak. Mm-hmm. You know, you would sort yeah. of assume that this guy who's now the, you know, the CEO of Accenture, that there would, it would sort of be like, you know, a teleprompter style speech. Um, no, it was like, that would have, that would to do jargon it. rich. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it was, it was very conversational, but it was like, here's what you need to do. Here's what you tell them. Here's what you got to look out for. Here's, here's the things to keep in mind when you're growing all that kind of great stuff. But it was, it wasn't like a PowerPoint presentation. It was just like, man, just watch out for this, just do this. Uh, you know, it was, it, it was super um, condensed and, and informative and like one of the best business conversations, best conversations I've had on, on the business in uh, my career. It's 15 minutes. <laughs> I'd recommend it to anybody. <laughs> well, I mean, you knew this going in that we're in a people business and that, you know, it's like the, the talent that you surround yourself with is going to define the company. But, but I, you also know that mischief, unlike BBDO, I mean, you got to handpick, you know, Bianca and Kevin and, and, and maybe some others who had impressive resumes. But when you're starting a company, you just simply can't afford to pay somebody for the Grand Prix they won five years ago. Um, and so you have to be way more judicious about, you know, the, the salaries that you hand out and you have to entrust maybe people who don't have awesome books or who don't have some, you know, long track record of success. Um, and you have to place bets on people in a way that maybe, you know, you're able to sort of bet on past success at a, at a holding company. So when you're interviewing at that level, you know, where maybe the book doesn't tell the whole story or you're, you're talking to somebody and they have a certain charisma and you go, man, you know, you've only been in the business a couple of years. Like how much can I expect out of your book? What, what are some of the, what are some of the qualities that you're looking for when you think about talent, when you interview talent sort of separate and apart from their track record or their book? Point of view, perspective. And the things that make a great creative in my mind are one, curiosity and empathy too, empathy, and then just having a unique voice. I, I think a, a lot of what we look for at Mischief, you know, we have said that we are like a, a strategy agency disguised as a creative hotshot, is, is someone who can think about problems in a different way. Like they came at this solution in such an unexpected way, but it makes perfect sense after you saw how they did it, you know? So just different ways of thinking of problems. And I think execution, you can learn, you can learn to have a, you can, you, you can become a better writer just by doing it and being surrounded by people who are great writers, same with art direction. But if you can figure out how to think and how to solve problems in unique, interesting ways, then you bring something to mischief. And, and that's, that's, that's what we look for. Someone who can um, unexpected solutions to interesting to hard problems. So as a junior, yeah. yeah, as a junior, you could put that in your book easily. It doesn't have to be super comped up. It'd just be an idea we had for a business that solved the problem in a way that nobody thought to ask for. Yeah. Is there a part of you too that, you know, you sort of have a process and a method and from what, what you've described, there's a, you, you, you put a lot of stock in just your ability to connect with people and the sort of chemistry that you can feel on a zoom even. Um, yeah. You know, does it sometimes just boil down to just like you feel a certain connection to somebody, even if they're yeah. really inexperienced? Is it, is it okay to admit that? It is. It is. I think in an agency, especially a small agency, your, your culture is defined by the, the the biggest asshole you have in the building. We try not to have any. You know, it's, it's defined by the worst person in the building. We've been really lucky, but also super selective of like, we just hire people again that, that we like and we want to be in the room with. So I don't care how talented you are, if you're difficult or you just put off a bad negative vibe, 
then we don't really, you know, we can't work with you. It's just not, it's, it's just too hard. Not, it's not worth it. There are too many talented people out there to be, to be difficult. Yeah. We talked about at BBDO, how you faced this kind of pressure to uphold a standard that you helped set. And now at Mischief in just two years, you face a pressure to uphold a really high standard that you've helped set. What's your relationship to pressure maybe compared to your previous job? And what's your relationship to awards? That's a place where we started and it's like, you win them, you enjoy them. Now we all start at zero. What does it mean to win an agency of the year or to win a lion as an independent agency yeah. versus as, I, a, as the creative head of, an, of a network? I have to say the most, you know, I don't put a ton of stake in awards because that's so fleeting. But I, the, the proudest moment I've had in my career, I think one up there, top one or two, is when we mischief one agency of the year. To me, that just says way more than any Grand Prix, Prix Lion because this is something about a group of people coming together to start something and make their mark on the world and show a different way and to have that recognized by the leading you know, publication against all these other agencies that have been around for decades and 10 times our size just really like met, met the world to to me and to the rest of people on mischief so you know that with that comes the pressure of okay what do you do next for us it's like let's just continue put her, keep your head down focus on the work continue to do what you do and don't worry about you know outside acclimations but it's, it is nice to be recognized i think as far as cans can't you know, lions go those are nice um I think people are putting a little less stock in them these days. I don't know. Um, still great to win them. I think clients appreciate winning them. You know, so it's it's a mark of of excellence, but not the only one. I I, I like bigger, wider marks of excellence than just something for a piece of work. Do you have a greater appreciation for just the cost of entries? Like I remember, I was on a jury when your um, Bud Light Pac Man work. I think it was like Clio music or something. And it was, you know, BBDO among is, 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 is in a certain class with large agencies that invest millions just in entries. These entries are expensive. They're a thousand dollars per entry now. And when you're an independent agency, you just like the, that's a difficult thing to compete with is just your work is not going to be seen in jury rooms with that level of frequency. Like, have you, have you, how, how do you think about that? Well, yeah, the Pac-Man work was actually Chicago. So um, if you didn't vote for it, don't, no offense to me. <laughs> I love no, but, that um, I love that work. Yeah, those guys did some really nice work for, for Bud Light. I, um, I do have a greater appreciation because it's people's salaries you're spending. So we want That's to be right. very careful about, we, yeah, we don't, enter, we don't enter without putting a lot of thought in behind, does this have a chance or are we doing this skillfully? And what are we trying to gain out of this award show? We don't enter every award show just to select few. And I think that's good. I think, you know, like I have 20 boxes of awards in my basement right now that will never see the light of day. So that kind of puts it in perspective, right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, but I do think they're good for, for morale. And I think they're good for juniors. It's the way, it's the way for a junior to build a career and a mid-level person to, to rise. So for me to say as someone who's won a lot of awards that they don't matter and good luck is, is disingenuous. And I think it's also like not fair to people. So uh, we do enter awards and part of that is because it's, it's important to people who work at Mystery. Yeah. Yeah, they don't matter to you as much because you won them and they served their purpose in sort of culminating in this moment. But for others, you know, they're at the beginning of their journey and, um, you know, one gold or even one bronze can change the 
the trajectory of your career. That's just the reality of it. Um, yeah, for, yeah. For, for Capri Sun, which was one of your, I think it might, might've been your first work, right? Um, and you guys, and you guys sort of, you punked some kids. It had a, a comedic flair to it. And then you did some work for Pfizer where you helped with the vaccine rollout. And so you're, you're capable as an agency of being funny, being serious, being sort of whatever the situation calls for in this early going. I mean, despite all of your success, it's still such a, you're still in, in your infancy. And so how vigilant do you need to be about sort of not allowing mischief to be pigeonholed into repeating itself or feeling sort of templated in its creativity? Right. We're very conscious of that. It's, it's, I'm glad you called that out because we don't want to be just the, the agency that does that. You know, when we take clients through our work, we, we warn them that they're going to experience some tonal whiplash because it does go from like, bless your fucking cooch to uh, Pfizer to, to represent us, which was like a serious, you know, anti, um, corruption campaign. So the, the the common theme should be, it should always have a smart idea behind it, a strategy. It's not just shock for the sake of shock. And it should also just be something that makes people want to talk about it. So that's, that's, that's what holds it together is um, work that creates, you know, conversation or work that makes people stop and think. And, you know, that can take, that, that can take on a million different tones, but, um, we, we try to not be pigeonholed as just the blank people. I know it's kind of a played out question, but I'm going to ask you anyway, what, what is the the thing that keeps you up at night as a agency founder that maybe didn't bother you or, or, uh, or lay too heavy on your conscience when you were an agency employee? Yeah, I think it's just keeping the, like, like you said, um, keeping, keeping it going, keeping the, topping ourselves constantly. It's the same, same, it's the same fear, same pressure. It's like, you just got to constantly keep growing and progressing and, and topping yourself and never be complacent. Uh, and then as an agency owner, you know, I do not take for granted the fact that people have moved across the country and set up their lives to work at mischief and, you know, put their careers to my hands. So I take that, I take that responsibility pretty seriously. So, um, you know, that's, that's a whole new different level than when you're working for a company that is responsible for that. The last time we talked in 2018, we already did the final three questions. So I'm not going to make you go through that again, but I am going to ask you if you remember when I asked you the one that got away, the idea that you never made, but, but you still think about, do you remember the idea that you shared in 2018? Only because I listened to not so long ago when you, when you asked me this again. So yeah, and by the way, it wasn't that great of an idea. I, I do have a different answer for that probably. Oh, I mean, okay. God, you know, I don't I know. Just, I don't know what, thank God. Yeah, no, but go ahead and ask me your question. I don't know if, if uh, just thinking about it, I probably, I don't know specifically what that'd be, but it's, it's been a few years. So I probably have a different answer. Well, your, your previous one that got away, my question was going to be now that you have your own agency, you have this Rolodex of ideas. And, and so, and so you have 30 clients. I mean, what you, what the one that got away might apply really beautifully and even better to a new client than it did to the, the original client that you pitched it to. Here's the thing with here's the thing with ones that got away is if they were so great they're usually solving a very specific problem for a very different for an unusual client or very specific client. I find it's very hard to retrofit ideas. That usually doesn't work. I don't. I, I haven't had the best luck. I don't think I've ever kind of retrofitted an idea and had it sail all the way through without it changing dramatically. Have you found that? Um, there are yes, with a few exceptions. 
Um, yeah. But so, so what's your new one that got away? No, I was just thinking about this. Uh, this happens to every creative that you have a really amazing idea. And then as soon as you're about to shoot it or make it, it comes out on the air for someone else just launches with it. Cause I was thinking about this, like what would be the one? And it goes way back to when I was mid to lip junior in, in LA or in posture. I was thinking we had this um, commercial for, it was, it was for a public service against meth addiction. It was like shot black and white, you know, pretty close up on a, a, like a little kid, seven, eight years old and looking straight to camera and saying like, when I grow up, I want to wake up in my own vomit. You know, when I grow up, I want to, you know, be afraid to see sunlight, whatever. It's like all these horrible things. And then the line at the end was nobody plans on being an addict. And then we were about ready to shoot that. And then like during that Super Bowl, the, the spot for some career, that um, really great spot for, a few, I think it was for career builders or something that's like, I want to grow up and be middle management. I want to grow up and be, it was the exact same execution, very similar idea. So it killed it. I was just like, oh, and then that went on to win like Super Bowl spot of the year, eight, you know, tons of awards. So as a junior, that is like gutting and ranching. The one solace you'll have, and this applies to anybody who's listening to this, is know that you'll, if you come up with that, you'll come up with others. So, and it happens to everybody. So take that as a part of the journey. I think that's right. I think in your 20s, sometimes you can be sort of misled into believing that you have a finite number of ideas and and then you start to get into this industry and you start to study great case studies and you start to realize, I think the job gets fun when you realize that like, you know, creativity is a sort of, you know, infinite and regenerating resources. Like the more creativity that you use, the more creativity that you have, you know? So if you, if you, if you practice every day, it actually like, it's just like any other muscle, it grows and gets stronger. Yeah. There are no wasted creative ideas because they, they will eventually build on something else. And if you, if you do something and it dies and it was really amazing, you know, be happy that you came up with something really amazing and again, then quickly get over it. You know, advertising is a bit of self-delusion that the next one's going to be amazing. And sometimes it is. You know, one of my favorite lines, it's from some agency, it's their website. And I can't remember the agency, but the line has stuck with me. And their line is, um, we don't know how we do it, but we do it every time. Yeah, and I feel like great. sometimes I'm hearing a brief from a client and it's like they have an expectation that we're going to deliver based on something else that we've done. And and the expectation that we've set is nowhere near the expectation that clients are probably bringing, you know, are probably foisting upon you. And, and um, can you feel that? Like when they're briefing you and it's like, fuck, I don't know what this is going to be, but I know that by that moments before we present it, I'm going to feel like if they don't buy this, they're idiots. Yeah. 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 I think you learned that. And this is something like, I know a lot of your listeners are, are younger trying to get into advertising. This is something you'll, you'll, you'll grow, grow to learn is that you always come up with something and everybody, no matter how long you've been doing this, stares at a blank page and think this is a time where I'm going to not come up with anything. I, uh, everybody does that. So just know that you, you will, you always will. It's just, you know, the, the beginning stages are sometimes scary. Sometimes you come out of a brief with a thousand ideas. Sometimes you come out of a brief going, what the fuck are we going to do with this? You know, uh, or how am I going to solve this? It's too daunting. But um, with experience, you'll learn that that exactly what you said will happen is you'll come up with an idea that you just feel like you have to produce. 
Like the world has got to see this. In, in a in a previous kind of in the previous era, sort of taught us that, um, you know that you almost should should throw out your first idea, or that your first idea maybe doesn't have as much merit. Now that you're an agency founder, and by the way, you have a very efficient brain. You've been doing this for a long time, and so when you like an idea, it's not just because of its its creative merit. You like it, and then you probably start to unpack why you like it, and you like it for all the ways that it answers the brief, and it's strategically sound. What percentage or what number of your ideas in the first two years, and I know you're not the obviously the only creative force at the company, and you're not the only originator of ideas, but has there been any examples of ideas that were sort of your first idea or Bianca and Kevin's first idea that went on to be hugely successful at Mischief? My first idea? I don't know. I mean, our briefings are so um, so ripe with ideas. Like the way our planners work and the way we work with planners is when we get into briefing, it's like an hour long process. It's not, we say it's not so much about the brief, but the briefing process. And they're baked in with areas and thought starters that we've all kind of come around with. So by the time you leave a briefing, you're kind of like off and clicking and, and you can easily trace back what we end up producing to the very first briefing that we had, you know, with a thought starter in it or with some sort of notion that led to a great execution of that. But in this day and age, a lot of things have happened where we didn't even have a brief or something just came to me or one of our creatives that we end up making because it, it, it was solving an interesting problem that the client didn't know they had. For example, I'll give you an example. Like early on, we had Aura Ring, which is this uh, body monitoring ring, sports yeah. ring, and it measures your sleep. And just on a whim, like it was the night before the, the election of 2020, which you can imagine, my, my one thought is like, fucking nobody's going to sleep that night because I certainly am not going to. I doubt the rest of America is going to. So the next day, like the day before the election, I was like, is there any way we can take all the people wearing these rings and aggregate how much sleep America got the night of the election versus previous week or whatever? And they were able to do that. And through a text message, we just sent a client like, here's an idea. What if we got a billboard that said, here's how much sleep America lost the night of the election you know, from Oracle? That was through a text message. Like two days after the election, we were in Times Square with that billboard. So Sometimes you don't need a brief, you know, it's, and, and if you have a good relationship with your clients, you can, you can get work out the door in less than three days into the world. So it's just a different kind of way of working. Yeah. I'm so appreciative of your return to this podcast and, you know, as, as an entrepreneur myself to be able to just pick your brain and hear your experiences is, is greatly valuable to me. So before I let you go, is there something I should have asked you that I forgot to ask you? Do you have a great answer to a question that I, that I didn't think to ask? Oh gosh. Do, That's a terrible get, question, but, but do with it what yeah. you will. Uh, I mean, one thing I want, we didn't talk about, but it, it's kind of buried in there is, is why mischief, why the name mischief. And that was very intentional because I wanted to put a name on our place that attracted the kind of clients that knew what they were signing up for. So if I were to call it Han or Han Fountain, you know, whatever it is, you know, like some sort of abbreviation, people would have no idea what we stood for other than just trying to bank off a reputation. But calling an agency something like mischief automatically puts that out in the world that um, if, you're, if you're up for a different kind of thinking, then we're the right place for you. If you're not, you know, there's plenty of other agencies that, uh, that, that might be better suited. So law of attraction yeah. again. It brands the type of work that you want to create and put in the world. Uh, 
And then by not naming it Han, it also allows, it, fe- it feels like the agency is, is an idea versus sort of a cult yeah. personality. And it's not, right. It's 100% not about me. I mean, I, I'm, the goal of any agency founder, I believe, or founders is to create a place that lives way beyond them. And I don't, you know, I don't see this as being my agency. I see this as being our agency. I have two founding partners and, and right now, you know, Bianca, Kevin, Carrie, we're all, we're all partners in this. And I want everybody who comes into mischief to feel like they're, they're building something, they're growing something. And let's uh, show the world what we can do when, when we get, you know, when we get the chance. Well, one more question before I let you go. I mean, it's been a rocket ship in your first two years, and it's felt like this sort of steady stream of good news and interesting news and interesting work. What does adversity look like at, at Mischief? Yeah, we've lost a few pitches. Um, adversity to me is, you know, it, are the moments where you, you know, really have your hopes set on something to win a pitch. Really feels like it'd be really great, and then you find out you don't. I look at that very again. I'm quite stoic. I just think that everything happens for a reason. Sometimes you see the work that comes out of the, the pitch that you lost and you're like, thank God we didn't get that because they're not the right kind of client for us. So I do think, you know, things happen for a reason. And, um, you know, you just have to build a team that has resilience. I don't, you know, nothing is good or bad. It's kind of how you think about it that turns it into that. So try to look at, at stuff. <laughs> Again, one of the themes of this conversation, I think, has been stoicism and 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 looking at looking at things as a um, as for what they are and not what you you know feel they should have been. You're way too much of a stoic to name your agency after yourself. And by the way, as a third added bonus, we didn't discuss if it takes a huge left turn and becomes a, an epic failure. It's pretty nice to not have your name on the thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, uh, that never, that never occurred to me. No. <laughs> it wasn't that funny. I just, it just never occurred to me. I just thought if, if I was going to, if I was going to start an agency, the agency should have a point of view Yeah, and, you know, and, and, and brand it like we would some of our clients. Well, what you've created and the success that you've achieved in such a short time is unlike really, I mean, you know, you know me to be a student of our industry. It's why I do this podcast and what you've done is really unlike anything we witnessed in our industry in recent memory, man. And um, yours feels like an overnight success story that was, you know, 25, 30 years in the making. Um, That's a good way to put it. You know, a lot, a lot, a lot of time and a lot of, uh, of, of hard work um, went into this kind of what feels like this accelerated success. And I, I, I really have an appreciation for that. And so just, you know, on behalf of all, small independent agencies trying to leave our own mark, you know, thank you for the inspiration and motivation and, and for showing us the way. I appreciate you saying that. And I've been watching what you guys are doing. It's equally as inspiring. And I think the thing that kind of unites both of us is we uh, are enjoying where we are right now <laughs> and, and uh, feeling a, a new sense of revitalization in, in advertising. I think that's, that's important. I, I love that you said, like, I still like the work. And it's like, the ideas are our product, you know? At at Dunkin' Donuts, the product is donuts. And at Apple, the product is phones and tablets. And at creative agencies, the product is ideas. And if you don't like the product, and if you're not a product person, then I feel like, you know, that's not the agency that I would want to work at. And that's not the agency I would want to work for and that I'd want to build. So, um you know, it's like I, when I when I was going to start the company, I was going to surround myself with all these creative people, 
And I got great advice. It's like, no, no, the work is going to be very personal to you, especially in the first couple of years when you're small. And that's where you've put your 20,000 hours. So don't hire a bunch of co-CCO senior creative people. Hire creative people you trust, but hire a bunch of people who do the things that either you don't know how to do or don't want to learn how to do. So there's no redundancy in leadership. And um, and so in, in, in the actual creation of work and what's stimulating and what's fulfilling and when you hear something and you spark to it, like that's the same for me today as it was at Crispin in 2006. And it was at, you know, all these steps along the way. It's like that hair standing up on your arm sensation, you know, like don't ever forget that that's why you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. That is, it's, it's, it's as equally exciting to me as it was when I first started. And I love that. Greg, thanks buddy. Appreciate the time and uh, can't wait to see what you guys do next. Thank you, man. Great conversation. Sorry about the sirens. There's a lot of crime in my neighborhood. (laughs) Talk soon. Thanks. All right. Thank you to the great Greg Hahn. Thank you as always to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, my friend, Mr. Jeff Fiorello. And as always, folks, if you're enjoying the pod, I ask that you subscribe, that you rate it, that you review it, and most importantly, that you share it with a friend or colleague at your agency or a nearby agency and spread the good word on our behalf. And until we talk again, peace.